Good evening, everyone, and um, welcome to the showstopper um, session. Today we have uh, our topic is, of course, exciting, but it also lends itself to um, varied interpretations. Um, we're going to talk about the weaponization of everything. Uh, in a sense, the world may be entering a new phase of globalization. Um, if the promise of globalization as we knew it was all about a flat world, the world we are ent entering is defined more by fragmentation than by a leveling of differences. The pillars of globalization, finance, technology, energy, law, education, science, trade, travel, uh, have all been turned into weapons in what we now see as a new form of warfare. And this is, it's not only restricted to the advanced economies or the powerful warfare or weaponization is also a leverage of the weak. On the one hand, the tools are economic and financial sanctions, and including, as we have seen in Russia, the first ever sanctions on a central bank. On the other side, on the other hand, they range from political coercion, predatory economics, predatory lending, strategic extortion, information warfare, subversion. Finance has been weaponized through banking sanctions and a, a, a sort of a balkanization, if you will, of global payment systems. China, which, is, which we see as the original weaponizer, uh, showed its arsenal during the past couple of years, during COVID, by shutting off supply chains, weaponizing its markets, certainly against Australia. Um, energy is being weaponized and counter-weaponized. It, the, if on the one hand the West is haranguing everybody to shut out, keep out our Russian oil, on the other hand we see Russia shutting off energy to countries like Poland and Bulgaria as they announced this morning. Is this the new reality of globalization? Because if it is, it has profound implications for governments, companies and individuals it would radically redefine the much-hyped rules-based order, boundaries, and tools of competition. I have a stupendous panel to take us through the labyrinth of this new world. Dr. Tobias Lindner, Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Germany, Anne Neuberger, Deputy National Security Advisor, on cyber and emerging technologies, the U.S. Harshwardhan Shringla, Foreign Secretary, India. Peter Stare, Minister for Public Security, Hungary. A hand for our panel today. Tobias, may I begin with you? Since you are literally in the thick of things. Um, if you had to look at the subject as we see it today, and we see it in all its flavors and it's all its colors, 
how does the world look like to you? How do you counter this world of weaponization and counter-weaponization? Thank you so much. Um, I believe the situation is even more difficult than described by you, because it clearly we can, we can see a weaponization of many aspects for various reasons we can discuss. For countries, sometimes it seems to be easier to use economic pressure or cyber attacks than to use military power, for instance. For others, it seems to, to be more easier to hide their own responsibility, what they are doing, not in using troops, but in using misinformation or, or, or cyber again. And still, weapons remain. So we have, on the one hand, weaponization, and we have weapons, and we have regular military immense conflicts, as we see in these days. And I believe um, the answer to both of the challenges is that we need to uphold and to strengthen multilateralism and the international rules-based order. It's the only chance in the end we have if we do not want to stop globalization, for instance. So, so that means it should be our common interest um, to uphold the UN Charter. It should be our common interest uh, to protect sovereignty and the territorial integrity of countries. It should be our common interest to hold people accountable. When we see the pictures of villagers like Bucha in Ukraine, where obviously war crimes have been committed, we need at least to collect evidence for that day that will come to hold people accountable for what they are doing. And if we are talking about other things, you talked about economic pressure. We can see, for instance, in the European Union, in Lithuania, how China is using its economic power uh, to pursue, at least to try to pursue its political interests. And therefore, it's the right approach to, to go to the WTO, to have a dispute settlement about this, so to uphold the rules and the mechanisms that had been established, um, also to counter weaponization of everything. Is that, uh, um, when, you, when you speak about putting uh, territorial integrity and sovereignty, and that is, of course, those are the basics of international law and, inter and the UN, certainly the UN Charter. But when you are, when you are confronted with a, a weaponization of, as you see in your own country, of energy, um, what, in your view, would be the way out? What, what, in your view, how do you take that forward? So, so especially when you look at energy supply, and, and, and you know that in Europe, for instance, the German demand for, for gas from Russia at the moment, we already declined it by one-third since the beginning of the war, but our demand is above average. And so our answer is, on the one hand, to put political and economic pressure on Mr. Putin and his oligarchs, on the other hand, to make clear what's the root cause for all of this. You mentioned the, the sanctions um, against the Russian Central Bank. The root cause are not the sanctions of the West. The root cause is the war of aggression of Ukraine. And in the end, you, you have to get more independent, so to diversify your supply structures. Um, and I can promise you, my government will give a clear, clear answer to, to that dependency of Russian gas. We will reduce it to zero within the next few years. Um, we are already uh, starting to stop uh, coal from Russia. We will uh, stop uh, any supply of oil from Russia. 
maybe within the next weeks. And uh, so, so our answer is to diversify our supply chains and to get more independent by that. And diversifying does not mean deglobalization. That's, that's also important to mention. Thank you. Um, and if I may come to you, and since you're, you're looking at cyber and emerging technologies, uh, in many ways, cyber is uh, an element of warfare, is a tool of modern, of weaponization of everything or modern warfare. Um, it is used quite effectively by certain, definitely certain powers in the world that we know, Russia, China, the powers that we are very aware of, which use um, uh, cyber warfare. Um, what is your view on how this A can be countered because obviously diversification is not something that we would be looking at in this particular domain. Um, what's your view on how we can uh, counter this? Thank you for the question. And I'll pick up on three of the key points Tobias made with regard to energy and share them in the context of cyber. So Tobias talked about the need to enforce international norms with consequences to ensure that when there are breaches of international norms, countries come together to ensure that the country that breached it ha faces those consequences. So in a cyber context, a number of countries signed up within the UN to international voluntary cyber norms in both 2015 and 2019. One example of that, for example, is that countries should not harbor actors conducting cyber attacks, akin, frankly, to what we see from a ransomware perspective, where Russia has been a, a country that has harbored criminal actors who have conducted cyber attacks, including disruptive cyber attacks. So from an international perspective, that is one way, to your point, to counter the weaponization by countries coming together first to attribute when there are activities that breach those norms, and then work together to impose consequences, whether those are sanctions, whether those are other practices in place. This is a fairly immature part of international law and practice. The norms were recently put in place, and the key now is enforcement. And then from a domestic perspective, again, picking up on a point Tobias made from an energy perspective, is when we talk about supply chain, we talk about resilience and we talk about security. So from a resilience perspective, one of the things countries are concerned about are disruptive or destructive cyber attacks. Cyber attacks particularly that could disrupt critical services in the country. In the United States, we experienced that last June, where there was a ransomware attack that disrupted a major oil, the major oil and gas, oil and gas pipeline serving our East Coast. And very rapidly, you had, despite our many requests, cars queuing at gas stations. And that highlighted a disruptive impact. And frankly, it highlighted the core breach of what we as governments owe our citizens, which is resilience of critical services. So as part of that resilience to cyber attacks, countries need to both look at what is their core infrastructure, and that's a combination of oil and gas, healthcare, clean water, and then work together to put in place practices that ensure they can be resilient. In many cases, that's a complex task because we've digitized our critical infrastructure without necessarily considering security. So now we're rapidly working to say those sensors we deployed in order to measure gas distributions or in order to connect devices in a hospital 
those sensors also need to be secured to ensure a malicious actor can't control them. And finally, from a supply chain security perspective, we need to work together across countries to ensure technology is built more secure by design. In the United States, President Biden issued an executive order in the spring that for the first time said we will use the power of government procurement to lift all boats, because we all use the same tech, and to say we will only buy technology that is built and deployed in a specific manner to ensure that supply chain can't be weaponized to distribute malicious software, whether for espionage or destructive purposes. And there's truly an opportunity for us as governments and the private sector to work together to have more assurance in the tech we rely on to achieve that supply chain security. Well, that's, uh, that's actually very interesting because you are talking of something called like trusted networks mm -hmm. and trusted networks between countries, something that I think is part of the, um, part of the agenda for the Quad. That's one of the big uh, uh, working uh, agendas in the Quad. But you touched on something else that is very interesting, and it was an aspect of global governance, if I may, when you spoke about um, uh, sanctioning countries that harbor cyber warriors or cyber warfare. Now, how or how do you determine? I know we. We've spent, what, 20 years uh, with an FATF or with uh, in, you know, prosecuting countries uh, that harbor terrorists. In a sense, this is a kind of terror. Um, but how do you find them? And what means of global governance would you use? Because as far as I can see, we don't have uh, a, a charter that, that lays out rules for cyber warfare and uh, how to counter it. So I was wondering what your thoughts are. Those are really thoughtful questions. And I'll answer them in, in two ways. So first, you know, the United States experienced this, I mentioned, during a, a criminal attack, a ransomware attack that disrupted critical infrastructure. And President Biden took the first step. He, he had a summit at the time with President Putin. We had identified technical information tying the hacker to an individual who was living in St. Petersburg at the time. And President Biden conveyed to President Putin that we as a country would hold Russia accountable for harboring an actor who conducted an attack which disrupted critical infrastructure. We would provide the details quietly in bilateral channels to enable the Russian government to follow up and within its own system, ensure that those actors were addressed. So the first part of that was ensuring there was country accountability for those actors. That is difficult and complex, and clearly hard to enforce in a community of nations. And clearly, this all occurred before Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine. But that first step of establishing sovereign accountability and providing the technical detail to demonstrate that is a core piece of that. And then I think the second piece of that is one you referenced when you talked about the Financial Action Task Force. And the Financial Action Task Force has done tremendous work establishing global anti-money laundering and countering terrorism approaches. And it's something we look at very much as we look at cryptocurrency right now and trying to build those same frameworks to control use of cryptocurrency to bypass sanctions or to fuel weapons programs. And the United States just really two weeks ago took the step of attributing the hack of a cryptocurrency exchange 
the theft of $600 million to North Korea and sanctioning wallets and working with various countries who had crypto exchanges and were a part of that ecosystem to share capacity to do the same thing, to take the rules we've established for physical currencies and work to establish the same community of countries with anti-money laundering practices in a very new and different emerging technology ecosystem. So a part of it is being willing to share the technical capacity, being willing to teach in a way when countries have different levels of knowledge, and also the partnership with the private sector and with not-for-profits that can help establish the governance and rules in that area. You have, uh, as Foreign Secretary, you have actually uh, spent the last couple of years uh, in many ways fighting uh, a kind of weaponization. And what has it taught us in terms of, you've, you've done this sort of relentless work around the world um, to secure supply chains, to secure uh, pharmaceutical ingredients, uh, vaccine ingredients, uh, when certain parts of the world shut themselves down, when certain parts of the world uh, refused to allow Indian planes in uh, to uh, buy, pick up uh, supplies. What have we learned, what have you learned, uh, and about what countries can do to prevent uh, this weaponization, or even to achieve some degree of self-reliance, uh, which is something that is now uh, a mantra for the Indian government. But what have you learned in these past couple of years? Thank you. Thank you, you need to switch that. Thank you, Indani. And let me start by saying what a pleasure it is to be part of this uh, eminent uh, panel, which is probably the penultimate one for the Raisina Dialogue 2022. Uh, I've listened very carefully to what uh, both uh, Tobias and Anne had to say. Uh, and if I can extrapolate from some of the conversations uh, uh, earlier, uh, essentially, and to simplify it, weaponization can take place uh, when there is an imbalance between demand and supply, uh, when uh, one party or more than one party controls that supply. Um, what are these supplies and what are the items? I think you mentioned them, uh, raw materials, uh, they could be uh, critical uh, technologies, they could be strategic minerals, uh, they could uh, be financial instruments. I mean, they could be essentially anything that can be controlled uh, to the detriment of others. Uh, from our perspective, and I think that was your question also, um, when the COVID-19 pandemic struck, uh, obviously, like all other countries, we scrambled to find essential medical equipment and, and supplies. Um, we obviously uh, looked about and saw uh, where they were, uh, where these supplies were needed. Uh, we found that we ourselves had significant capacities. For example, we manufacture masks, but an essential component of the masks came from one country. We are considered to be the pharmacy of the world. We produce uh, a bulk of the world's uh, medicines. But we find that we found that uh, we were dependent again on one country for the active pharmaceutical ingredient, which is the API. Um, 
if you uh, went to uh, a car dealer and uh, and paid for a car you got it immediately uh, but today you've got a fairly long wait ahead of you for the simple reason that uh, semiconductors that are needed in uh, the manufacture of vehicles uh, are not available uh, so there is a, a clear uh, gap between demand and supply and and clearly this is uh, something that uh, has been exacerbated during times of uh, of uh, uh, unusual situations, uh, black swan events like like the COVID pandemic, but then we've seen it also, um, you know, on in different uh, circumstances. Uh, you come down to what countries can do to insulate themselves uh, from a weaponization of uh, uh, everything, as you call it. Um, I think part of the answer lies in your question, which is basically the quest for self-sufficiency, what we call uh, Atmanirbhar uh, Bharat, the self-sufficient India. Uh, Self-sufficiency does not mean isolation. Self-sufficiency does not mean ring-fencing yourself. Self-sufficiency self self as in Atma means creating capacities. You create capacities that can help you and help others. Um, you also, of course, ensure that you diversify. I think this was mentioned uh, earlier. You diversify to ensure that there are alternative supply chains. Uh, we are working with Japan and Australia on, on what are called resilient and, and secure supply chains. Uh, we are working within the Quad uh, with the United States and other partners on uh, similar efforts. You mentioned uh, critical uh, technologies. Uh, we are working on strategic minerals. We are trying to ensure that we can uh, have alternative suppliers uh, for items that are very, very, uh, very strategic to our own requirements. Uh, so you try to uh, make sure that you have uh, what it takes to insulate yourself in the event of other emergencies in the in the event of a surge in demand, uh, you create capacities that are important for yourself. Um, the other options, of course, are to work together to create a stronger global governance uh, regime. Um, you know, uh, we mentioned multilateralism, we mentioned an international order. I think that's very critical. I think countries have to come together, the international community has to come together uh, to see how we can impose a rules-based order, which is what we've been talking about throughout, uh, how we can try and have global governance norms uh, that all countries should follow, especially when it comes to new technologies. We are entering new domains of artificial intelligence, we are entering new domains of cyber, um, you know, cyber um, hacking, and cyber issues. Uh, uh, we need to uh, really come up with, uh, with uh, frameworks that the countries are obliged to follow, uh, and there should be consequences if you don't follow. I think this is also spoken about. Um, a rules-based international order as in ensuring that uh, there is access to global common spaces. Uh, we talk about the Indo-Pacific from the point of view of free, open, uh, transparent uh, region. That's the sort of region that we want to see ourselves in, we want to live in. Uh, this, is a, this is a region that should be governed by a rules-based international order. And that's the sort of order we need to impose to ensure that global commons, whether it is freedom of navigation of the seas or overflight uh, freedoms. These are those norms that are followed by all concerned. And uh, weaponization is something that, that uh, is minimized. Uh, it will happen because demand and supply is in the nature of things, but it should not happen in a way uh, that is used uh, to leverage uh, interests and that is used to coerce other states, that is used to bring other states to certain uh, situations that are untenable. Uh, we have seen it in our own region and we've seen it uh, beyond that. Uh, ultimately, I think the solution lies, as I said, uh, in the international community coming together, uh, more multilateralism, more uh, frameworks that all of us uh, uh, 
you know, as as a as a as an international community can follow and and uh, live with. Um, Mr. Shingla, you spoke about uh, um, the weaponization of public goods, I and mean, so far we've spoken about weaponization of you know energy and cyber warfare, etc. But weaponization of public goods is actually something that uh, is a uh, new and b uh, it has uh, it actually affects the the man on the street um, and we've seen that but in the la certainly in the last couple of years but my question is it is isn't it a little a lot more than just a an, uh, a discrepancy between demand and supply where when um, a country say like china uses uh, its supplies of public goods during a pandemic to actually further its interests or to um, bar a country or countries from accessing them. Isn't that a, a kind of uh, aggression? And if that is so, then how does one, uh, how, do, how does the world deal with it? Well, uh, the supply of public goods uh you know, it could be uh, commodities, it could be anything that is uh, for the larger public consumption. Um, if you look at it, uh, you know, there has always been a certain leveraging of demand and supply, um, which is commercial. I mean, after all, OPEC was created in order to ensure that, uh, that uh, you know, demand, I mean, supply was, was kept uh, at a certain level uh, that prices could be elevated. Uh, but when you use that uh, for other interests, in other words, beyond the commercial interests, and you use it uh, to, uh, you, as you say, weaponize it to, to uh, coerce other states, then that becomes uh, a distinct uh, problem. Um, and it doesn't have to be only supply. It can also be, uh, you know, uh, demand. If you, if you are a major consumer, uh, that also gives you leverage to weaponize that. Um, take the case of the Australian supply of, of coal or, or uh, seafood. Uh, if you are a major consumer of that product and you control, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the demand factor in that product, then you certainly can weaponize that. So we are talking about any sort of weaponization, whether it's demand or supply, where control is there uh, predominantly with one party uh, or a group of parties. I think uh, that sort of cartelization is something that we uh, feel strongly about. The case of shortage of fertilizers, uh, uh, you know, it, it sort of impacts on countries all over the world. Uh, so you come down to the same issue that uh, whether it is common goods or whether it is financial instruments or whether it is, uh, you know, critical technologies, uh, we as an international community, I think, need to do more. Uh, we also, as, as democracies, as countries who believe in a free, open and transparent uh, international order, also need to come together to achieve our ends. And I think we are doing that. Probably uh, we will see more of that in, 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 in the coming months uh, as we go along. Uh, thank you, Mr. Shingla. Mr. Stari, I you have uh, in your you're in Europe and you are literally in the middle of the biggest conflict of our times, um, where and where we are we have seen um, the weaponization of pretty much everything that we can think of. A, how what does it look like from your perspective? Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the invitation. This is my third time at Rizina, and I think this is a wonderful conference. And I also appreciate the audience at this late hour being awake and being so attentive. So thank you for that. 
Uh, you said we are in the middle of, uh, of a crisis or of a, <clears throat> of a huge uh, uh, challenge. We are a neighboring country to Ukraine, yeah. and this is really a serious challenge to our security. Uh, so Hungary is very much against the weaponization of anything. Uh, and uh, I think uh, most of the countries are of the same opinion. We think that uh, we have to stay out of this war and that the parties should get back to diplomacy, should get back to the negotiating table, because this kind of war really uh, ruins uh, the uh, rules-based international order. And uh, uh, we have spoken in the past decades a lot about uh, effective multilateralism, and then all of a sudden, uh, multilateralism collapses, you know, and because of that, uh, we think that if we, if, if you look, for example, at the, the example of the Helsinki system, which was established 50 years ago, yeah. and it seemed to work, and now in the OSC, for example, we cannot make any decision because it's impossible. Now we excluded Russia from different uh, international organizations, from the Council of Europe, from other organizations. But where, where does this lead? How can we normalize after this crisis the situation? So I'm a bit cautious on, uh, on weaponization of anything. And also, uh, if you look at how things are weaponized, then it's true that even democratic countries weaponize some things according to their national interests. And if uh, a country vetoes in an organization, then it weaponizes its, its, its right to veto according to its national interests. If a country wants to exclude another country from an organization, then it's a weaponization. Even democratic countries uh, have offensive cyber capabilities, for example. What's that if not weaponization? So I would be careful with judging anyone, but it's true that there is a serious blow against uh, multilateral cooperation. And uh, I think uh, none of us knows for the time being how we come, can come back uh, to normal and how we can rebuild, for example, a European security architecture that is efficient, inclusive, based on the rules, based on international law, um, but also <clears throat> taking seriously its principles and not allowing uh, the use of aggression and uh, other uh, means that are unacceptable. Thank you so much. Uh, I, uh, to take that uh, forward, if you, if you were to uh, devise another, a, a rules-based order, if you were to devise areas of global governance uh, around this particular crisis, uh, would, should there be no-go areas of for warfare? Should there be areas that really, uh, that we should not touch? Food, for instance, uh, public goods, for instance. But is, should there be some areas that we should keep out of uh, a weaponization, which, as you said, um, every, every nation, including democratic nations, uh, have engaged in. Well, I think there are very many areas where there sh which should be no-go zones in that respect, starting with human life and going through nuclear power plants, for example, uh, going through some cyber attacks. But if you look at uh, human history, unfortunately, it's clear that there are no uh, areas of human life which are not uh, part of possible weaponization or possible attack. So in that respect, uh, I am a bit skeptical about how uh, mankind has learned from history. And I think we have to take that very seriously, because if we want to build a peaceful future, then we have to uh, decide 
which are those areas, and you're right on that, uh, which uh, should be untouchable. But uh, I'm a bit skeptical, I must admit, because even the present conflict in Ukraine, the war, shows that there are no taboos. And uh, the Western community of nations uh, does not accept that, but uh, we have very limited uh, uh, tools to stop that. So we have to somehow uh, convince the parties uh, uh, to come back to the table and uh, to set the rules for this and to end the war and not to let the war escalate to any other country <clears throat> or even to any, any other parts uh, within Ukraine uh, because it's a huge, huge uh, danger for all of us. Absolutely. <clears throat> uh, thank you all. I will now open up to questions from the floor. Um, I will first choose if there are there any questions from the Reisner Young Fellows. Uh, I, I'll give the first a question to the Raisina Young Fellows. Um, could you introduce yourself? Hello, my name is Russ. I'm a uh, Raisina Young Fellow. Um, and I think you have the dubious honour of being the first person to mention North Korea uh, during this conference, uh, particularly given how many sessions we've had on uh, in the, the Indo-Pacific, which invariably have come back to Ukraine. Um, now, Ukraine's perhaps no coincidence. You're completely correct. Uh, North Korea, according to the FBI, stole 600 million uh, US dollars in cryptocurrency just two weeks ago, presumably to fund their illegal uh, nuclear program. Last year, the BBC estimates that North Korea also stole over 400 million, and that's just what we know about. So my question for the panel is, um, you know, what concrete steps do you think we should do uh, to prevent further cyber crimes and to bring an end to this kind of North Korea nuclear missile program funded through crime? Thank you very much. Who would like to take that? And since you mentioned cryptocurrency, <clears throat> since, uh, there was uh, the sense that it was appropriate to bring up North Korea, perhaps. Yes. It's a good question because it's a hard problem, right? Could you, sure. It's a good question because it's a, it is a hard problem. Uh, North Korea uses very innovative approaches and does use both malicious cyber attacks as well as tech workers working in various countries um, to fuel its, as you noted, its nuclear missile program and its ballistic missile program as well. And indeed, being at the leading edge of technology allows it in many ways to stay one step ahead of government's ability to enforce, follow the money and anti-money laundering rules that we've put in place very effectively, um, both to enforce sanctions as well as to control proliferation of weapons, trafficking, and people. So two parts, I would say. The first part is it really does require cooperation among governments to implement the same, as I mentioned earlier, anti-money laundering rules and the same transparency and communications to rapidly share information when thefts occur. And that rapidly is the key word there, because in the era of the new technologies that are used, it is far easier to launder funds in some ways. The second piece of that is really deeper partnerships with banks, money services, businesses around the world to help educate on how to track the blockchain. In some ways, there's visibility there to help educate about countries where North Koreans are living as tech workers and using that to fund the regime and truly work together. It's, to the foreign minister's comment, a great example of where the only effective approach is not only a multilateral approach among governments, but a multilateral approach among governments, 
and the private sector to be most effective. Thank you. Um, do you want to say something? Uh, if you permit, uh, I just wanted to uh, take up a small point that was uh, conveyed earlier by uh, uh, a colleague from uh, Hungary. Um, I fully agree with the point that, uh, you know, weaponization can be used by both democracies and autarkies or non-democracies. Uh, in fact, I said as much uh, when I commented that it, it, it is something that can be used by anyone, including in commercial terms. But I want to emphasize the fact that democracies, which function under a rule of law, uh, under uh, an open uh, system, would find it far difficult to weaponize uh, anything. Let me give you an example. If in India we were to try and weaponize uh, the supply of a certain commodity, say a raw material, uh, we tell our uh, industry that please stop supplying this material to a certain country. Uh, in the first place, I don't think anybody would listen to us uh, because, you know, it's a free system. The second point is that if we were to anyway uh, insist and ask them to go ahead with it, uh, you would have uh, people going to the courts, uh, you would have stay orders, you would have uh, the right to information, you would have many means of recourse to ensure that this did not happen. So what I'm trying to say is that we function under systems that make it difficult for weaponization of the type that we're talking about, a coercive weaponization. And that is what distinguishes us as democracies from autarkies and countries that actually use weaponization to their advantage and to coerce other states. And that's that's short point I want to make. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yes, go right ahead. Thank you. My name is Calvin. I'm a policy analyst for Foreign Policy Community of Indonesia. Um, I would like to deliver questions to Minister Peter and also to, um, so my question is that I, I'm, I would like to ask you to more elaborate that security architecture should be in the value of inclusivity. Um, because inclusive is a very strategically important term in the perspective of Southeast Asia and ASEAN. And I would like to know more in your point of view. And I also want to know more how it means inclusive word for India, particularly Indo-Pacific. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, should we take another question? Uh, would you like to address that question? That, no, I think it's a... No, no, no. Oh, uh, your question was addressed to Mr. Shringla? Um, to the minister from uh, Hungary and also... Yes, from, I thought from, so. ...or you uh, from the Indian. It, so, to, I think... Yeah, for Peter. you. Well, thank you. I mean, <clears throat> inclusiveness is, of, of course, uh, very important because uh, that is a way how you can accommodate different uh, ideas and different interests. And I think we have an interest in that the, as the international community. Uh, we, Hungary, we are an EU member and we have uh, also a global outlook, both bilaterally and through international organizations and through the EU. So for example, the EU has a strategy for the Indo-Pacific and I think that's one of the ways how we can get closer to, to such to this area of the world, and how we can inclusively think about common endeavors together. So that's a very useful way of using uh, the multilateral fora. Uh, <clears throat> for others, of course, it's, it's, it's quite difficult because uh, there are so many different interests and, and converging interests that uh, to accommodate all of them, it's uh, practically impossible. So inclusiveness has its limits, but uh, 
decisions uh, within states and among states, if they are inclusive, they can help a better understanding and better solutions for all of us. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, I think there's a young man here. Go ahead, and then we'll come to you. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you for the <coughs> discussion, by the way. And uh, I'm Sabdarshi, a journalist from the Quint. I just, since this panel discussion is called weaponization of everything, my mind couldn't help but go back to November last year in Europe when the Belarus-Poland border crisis was happening and it was known as a weaponization of migration. And I guess my question then is directed to the delegations from Germany and Hungary, which is um, a couple of theories that are emerging from the war right now in, in Ukraine is that even if Russia does not believe that it can overthrow Kiev, it is still trying to um, inflict as much human damage as it can so that it can push refugees towards the rest of Europe, thereby again weaponizing migration. So how do you deal with a situation like that when A, there is a major superpower which is weaponizing actual human beings who are fleeing for their lives, and on the other hand, you can't really say no to them because you have to protect them as well. So how do you deal with this weaponization of migration, which to me is actually quite a novel thing, because when that happened in November last year, I think everybody was pretty shocked. How do you deal with a situation like that? Thank you. Tobias, would you like to take Yeah, it? Yeah, sure. So, so you, you mentioned you started your question with the situation at the border of Belarus to Lithuania and Poland uh, last year. And um, therefore, I would clearly say, yeah, migration was tried to use as a weapon or as a threat to the European Union, especially when my own government was under transition. And we have, we have clear evidence for it. You, you, when you look at, for instance, at Iraq, where flights have been offered, uh, to Minsk, where misinformation was, was, was spread, that was a clear use as a, as a weapon or, or as, as pressure. And, and the ways how to counter that is to make things public, to look at narratives. There had been narratives in social networks, for instance, uh, stating that Chancellor Merkel would send 2,000 buses uh, to the border and uh, to bring those people to Germany and everyone would get a house and a car for free. And our approach was to, to also go to the social networks and to counter it, to, to make statements on that, but also, uh, for instance, to talk to, to the authorities in Iraq, especially northern Iraq, uh, to stop these flights. So that's the one thing. And I think you need to clearly distinguish it from what happens in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, in its neighboring countries, what we see people forced to leave their country is, is a consequence of the Russian war of aggression. And we need to, to support and to help these people. We, as, as a German government, we need to support our Eastern European allies, be it Hungary, be it Poland. We need to take our own uh, share of responsibility but overall, every day we need to make clear what's the root cause for that, and that's the war of aggression started by Russia. And there's, there's no excuse from that, and it should be in our own interest, in our common interest, that Russia stops its aggression. Thank you. It, uh, yes, correct. If I may uh, come back on, uh, we differentiate between uh, two types of migration, basically, in Hungary. In 2015 and since that, we have been hit by a huge wave of illegal uh, mass migration on our southern border that we could not accept because uh, these people came through the border without permission, they were aggressive, they walked through the country without observing uh, our laws and so on and so forth. So we had to take measures and defend our border, which is, by the way, an external border of the Schengen area. So we have an international obligation on that. Now we differentiate that type of migration from the refugees 
coming from Ukraine because they come from a war zone directly to the first safe country, including Hungary. You know, it's a very big difference to the other one. Those people who cross four or five countries, they arrive on the border of Hungary and then they move forward to the West and they are cherry picking among the, the better countries where the social benefits are higher. So that's why we have to uh, take that differentiation. And I must tell you that since uh, the 24th of February, we have received more than 700,000 people in Hungary, gave them shelter, gave them food, schooling, whatever. Many of them, of course, left, but we have to accommodate uh, many of them. So that's the differentiation. Right. right. <clears throat> Go right ahead, man. Can you, uh, I think we, can, we need to hear you better. Um, is that better? Yes. Okay. Um, my name's Jenny Mander. I'm from an academic from the University of Cambridge. And in fact, I was about to ask almost exactly the same question about the weaponization of migration. Given that, that we've already had some answers to that, I wonder if I might go a little deeper and ask the panel what they think about the weaponization of migration in the political discourse which precedes the weaponization of migration that we've seen perhaps in the last year or so. And perhaps I might tack on to that. How does the panel see the weaponization of cultural identity that creeps into political discourse in various um, agendas. Thank you. Uh, who would like to take that? Well, let, let me make only a few remarks on that. So what we have experienced, especially in, in Western countries and European countries during elections in the United States, for instance, is that, for example, Russia has spread public narratives on uh, cultural identity, on, uh, on risks or on dangers due to migration, try to influence the public opinion, and so on and so forth. And I, I believe we need to do two things at most. First of all, to get our own status, what's happening. So to do our own, uh, I'm, I'm tempted to say surveillance, but it's more watching, analyzing, getting the full picture, what it spread out in the news and in networks. And the second thing is we have to be better in our own strategic communication. And this is more than the press office in, in, in my ministry or in, in, in other ministries. Strategic communication means explain to your own public in very simple and verifiable words what you are doing, why you are doing this, uh, trying to give facts, trying to give facts that can be checked. That's, uh, from my point of view, the best way how to counter these attacks. Go right ahead. Tobias really answered the point I think I was going to make about weaponization of information and the role of disinformation, particularly, frankly, in multi-ethnic societies where information and weaponization can be used to tear at the fabric of that society, the common values and the open debate and discourse. And I think much as Tobias noted, we have to fight that with weaponizing information in our own way to ensure that we communicate on those same platforms, accurate information, frankly, to use those platforms to understand different groups' grievances, different groups' concerns, and respond to that in the same timely fashion. Because particularly for democracies, where the integrity of elections and the integrity of active debate and discourse is something we're proud of, but we don't want weaponized. We must treat that as a forum and a battleground and actively counter that weaponization. 
Well, thank you. Thank and those would be actually the last words. We're totally out of time. And thank you all for being a great audience. And thank you, panel. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.